0: Welcome to the Property Portfolio Podcast with Mark Stokes and Nigel Green. Every week we inspire and guide you towards success in the world of property development, mentorship and fundraising. Before we jump into today's episode, a reminder to join us at equacademy.co.uk where you can gain free access to hundreds of videos and templates to help you on your property development journey. I'm delighted to welcome the Director of Western Europe for Tesla, Georg L. Welcome, Georg.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Thank you for for coming all this way to see us, really genuinely appreciated. And this is one of the episodes that many of our listeners have been hugely looking forward to. Um, Some of the the driving ambition that you and your organisation have showed over the last few years. So really looking forward to this. But maybe you could start by just introducing where you came from, what your background is, and
1: just let us understand a bit more about you. Sure. So actually, I have an international background. My mother's Dutch. My father is German, but he was born and grew up in Lisbon in Portugal. I was born in Switzerland, and then we moved to the UK when I was just nine months old. So lots of languages spoken at home, um, different cultural influences, and I think that still actually uh, resonates and informs who I am today. But as I say, grown up in the UK, married to a wonderful English woman, and um, studied here in the UK, and uh, I've worked here ever since, albeit for, for my whole career. I've worked for US West Coast based. Companies, um, each of which, in their own way, has been trying to um, disrupt the world in some in some fashion. So I've had that opportunity to, to, to um, be, be part of a transatlantic bridge between American ambition, ways of thinking, work ethic, and a sort of European um, pragmatism and nuance and complexity, and try and somehow um, mesh the cogs of these two uh, these two continents. And uh, had a lot of fun doing it.
2: Right. So let me take us back um, to before test what, what, what were your first first employers? What were your first roles? And how did that disrupt it? Yeah. just start?
1: So actually, it was interesting. I, I uh, originally thought that I was going to go and work in strategy consulting because I thought that that would give me the opportunity to see lots of different businesses at work and lots of different people and I'd be able to learn from them. And um, in the midst of those applications, I met a chap who um, actually gave me some great advice and he said... He said, what do you want to be one day? And I said, I'd love to be a CEO one day. That's my ambition. Still is. And he said, well, if you want to be a CEO, because I'm a CEO, then you need to figure out what kind of CEO you are. And you can either be an engineering led CEO, a finance led CEO, or a sales led CEO. And so his advice was get into sales and kind of crack on with that for as long as you can stand it. Because um, actually once, once you're out of the sales world, it's difficult to get back into it. But if you can stay in it and understand the customer and revenue, then actually at some point as a CEO, you're going to be responsible for the customer and revenue. So he he kind of inspired me to take a more a practical approach. Her uh, first step into my career and I it, rather than going down a consulting route and advising other people on what to do, um, I went into sales with Microsoft and um, absolutely loved it. I joined on their graduate program. It was just tremendous fun. They sent us around the world on different training courses and really uh, met some incredible people and some extremely close friends with whom I've worked, you know, not just at Microsoft but in subsequent companies as well. And um, I was then fortunate because I was, I was at Microsoft at a time that the cloud was just starting to make its way into the enterprise and many people at Microsoft were trying to figure out what that meant and how we would commercialize it and bring that as an offering to customers. And it was, in a very real sense, disrupting our own business from within. And I um, had the opportunity to be part of a very small team that that was really early doing that in europe and um and kind of things things spiraled from there so those those, those are my first uh, first real steps i did i did spend a year in banking you know to to um see whether or not i had a taste for it and i didn't so you know i had to know but uh, it wasn't for me and um yeah from that, that was, those those are sort of the early career days
2: you strike me as somebody who's comfortable being outside of their comfort zone and mm. driving the boundaries. Would you say that's
1: true? Very much so actually. Um, in fact, I get very bored, uh, really quite quickly <laughs> if I'm too much in my comfort zone. And I don't know, I, I think, I think you could point to different sort of genesis of that different areas. Part of it maybe starts very young, where I used to be a, a, a real nerd, and I would love reading science fiction and fantasy novels and always imagine myself as the hero. Um, and the heroes' lives were always interesting and varied. And then moving, moving forwards more to the real world, after university, I actually spent a year um, sailing around the world, or ten, 10 and a half months sailing around the world, in, um, in an event called the Global Challenge, which was um, a yacht race, together with a group of other amateurs there were 18 of us on on the boat so 17 amateurs one professional sailing against the prevailing winds and that was really an interesting experience i learned a huge amount about leadership um and about myself and i think um made many mistakes along the way you know with hindsight as a young man Um, (laughs) but um i i did i think develop certainly just A real enjoyment for um for stress actually and um i just find that if you if you if you manage stress in fact i often give advice that one shouldn't think about managing stress i'm going to change my words there slightly stress can be your friend if you're if you're an athlete then you go to the gym to stress your muscles they break down you take a rest they heal stronger and you go back and you stress them more than you did before and you repeat the cycle And actually, I really think the same is true in business. You know, you do need recovery times, but actually you can run towards stress and enjoy it. And then each time you can take on a bit more and a bit more. And then, you know, if you, I think if you do the opposite, if you, if you hide from stress or you try to control it too much, then, then actually the opposite, you, you atrophy, you become less comfortable taking it on. So, so yeah, I think I am in general comfortable in times of, um, um, turbulence and uh, uh, uncertainty, and uh, try to um, try to enjoy, the, you know, the creative chaos that those opportunities provide.
2: And um, ten months of natural creative chaos that the uh, other nature can throw at you, and yeah. yeah
1: challenge well thank you but I, I mean what was wonderful about that event is a real shame it doesn't exist anymore as an event but it was a very diverse group of people on each boat each boat had a different culture and, and ours was um uh, was the same in that respect so i was the uh, one of the youngest on on the boat but we had uh, two two gentlemen in their 60s on the same boat and all walks of life and different levels of prior sailing experience we'd all done the necessary training to participate in the event but you know i had never crossed an ocean before i'd never raced seriously before and my partner on the foredeck of this boat was um, uh, an ex-military man who had also spent his youth in the north sea as a fisherman and there i was as a sort of you know 20 22 year old public school boy from north london i mean you know he and i couldn't have been come from more different backgrounds but we formed an incredibly close friendship and working relationship and i respected him and still do enormously because there was nothing that anyone at that point or ever since has been able to teach me that he wasn't able to demonstrate in terms of self-discipline and hard work and so you know that was um that was super cool
2: incredible uh, over the years in business uh, i've employed many members of our uh, ex-members of our uh, and women of our ex-servicemen uh, and uh service industries and in absolute phenomenal about grit, determination vigour self-discipline just in bucket lines every time yeah
1: he gave me he said something interesting to me once so he, he had been in um, you know, an, an elite um, force and I asked him once what it was that meant that he was chosen out of the, the group and he looked at me and said in thick Scottish accent he said hunger it was just more hungry for it than anyone else and funnily enough, I've seen that be demonstrated in different walks of life many times now, that one of the great determinants of success is, frankly, just how much you want it and how much you need it and how, how deeply ingrained that obsession that, that is. And um, I've never forgotten the look he gave me as he said it. Steve. Absolutely. A thousand yards there. Yeah.
2: Um. How of that learning did you take from that that you subsequently brought into your leadership skills in leading, big
1: you know, lead businesses? Mm. Do you know it was interesting? I, you know, as I say, I was very young at the time. I finished the race age 23 and there was a watch um, as we were on one of the final legs where not a lot was going on above decks and I had a pad of waterproof notepaper and I wrote down some thoughts, um, sort of lessons from the global challenge, you know, me to my future self like slightly, um, what's the word, um, um, presumptuous or something, but anyway, you know, there I was, um, and I've looked back at them a few times over the years and there's some that are a little, you know, a little youthful, but there's a lot that's very basic stuff. And, um, and so I think what I learned actually was that a lot of leadership is about getting simple basics, right. You know, remembering to thank people. It's amazing how many leaders forget that having a low ego, actually, and making sure that the buck stops with you when things go poorly, but that others get credit when things go well. And Mm -hmm. there's no doubt that in certain areas of corporate life, you know, one has to occasionally be deliberate to make sure that one still gets credit for the things that one has done well. But if, but that's, that's managing your own personal stuff. That's nothing to do with leadership. Leadership is about making sure that your team you know, really feel you've, you've got their back and you are there to make them successful and, um, and that they trust you in that respect. And, and one of the best definitions of leadership that I've subsequently seen it's a two and a half uh, video of Colin Powell when he was asked the question. It's on YouTube. It's it's well worth a listen or a watch. And without spoiling it, because he says it better than I can, when he's asked about the definition of leadership, he talks all about trust. And he says that he was told, you'll know you're a great leader when people will follow you if only out of curiosity. <laughs> and I I think that is a really beautiful way of putting it. So so there were some things from the, the global challenge experience there that I, that I wrote down and did really sort of stick with me, and I think um, uh, you know, I can't trying to be calm under pressure, and that sort of thing as well. But um, but I've learned a lot since then from some extraordinary people, you know, good and bad as as well.
2: Brilliant. We are having a discussion this morning about business, and somebody brought up the two qualities. One was the quality of humility, um, and the other being being calm under pressure. And it reminds me of. Uh, the military phrase that the best laid plans survive, never survive and, uh, the first contact with yeah. the enemy. Yeah. Um, and that, I guess, leads on to some of the groundbreaking and seismic challenges that you've now thrust yourself into with, with Tesla over recent years. Yeah. I mean, you're not just changing the face of the automotive industry here, right? are yeah. you? give know, us some, some, some uh, tapestry, really? what you're addressing here
1: yeah and, and actually let me sort of segue into that by just reflecting on, on one further thing from the sailing which was a great experience was that leadership isn't just about individuals in positions of hierarchical authority actually like the example of my friend he provided a phenomenal example of personal leadership in the example that he set and then when you have a team that are very very clear on what they're all there to achieve And this is then, of course, part of the link to Tesla. That team can start to operate almost without speaking. You know, I remember in extraordinarily challenging physical conditions in the Southern Ocean with huge 60 foot waves battering us. And the people I needed to communicate with at the other end of the boat, you know, even if we'd wanted to shout at each other, we couldn't have heard one another, but just they knew my job i knew theirs the timing we understood you could do your job and just look up and you would see that 40 feet away down the boat the other person was already looking at you waiting for you to just give him that look at which point they would do the next thing and you would do the next and it all you know and when you reach that in business that level of understanding as a team you know you really you get great job satisfaction and that's the link to tesla because at Tesla, it starts and, uh, with the mission and, and accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. And I believe uh, that you can go into any Tesla location anywhere in the world and talk to anybody in the front office or the back office and say, what's the mission of Tesla? And they'll all be able to tell you that is exactly what it is. And that matters because it informs, you know, the types of people that we hire, how we choose to onboard them. It informs, um, you know, thousands of small business decisions we make along the way. And then a very small number of very big ones, like multi-billion dollar acquisitions as well, um, which are all about ultimately trying to solve a bigger problem than just a transportation problem. And we're most famous for cars, but actually Tesla's... um, The world's first vertically integrated sustainable energy business now what do i mean by that i mean that we're trying to solve the world's energy consumption uh, sorry the world's energy challenges and that means generation of energy storage of energy and then consumption of energy in a in a sort of closed loop and the um the the opportunity on the uh, generation and storage side of our business to to do good for this planet is at least as large, if not larger, than the transportation side of the business. So, although what we're doing with cars is our bread and butter today and and um, how most people know us, it's um, it's and still hugely exciting. Um, actually, what we're doing on some of the energy side of things is uh, is just as motivating to me. And so, I think our teams appreciate being part of something that's bigger than themselves and i know you know for my wife and i there were a few aha moments around um around my choice to come and work for tesla and then subsequently when we had our our daughter and you start to feel you know very strongly about certain elements of air quality for example in in our inner city spaces and you know if it's of interest i could talk about you know that side of things yeah because the truth is it's it's a very acute problem and four years ago it wasn't on the front pages, but today air quality is in the, is in the headlines almost every day. So, so here are some frightening facts. Um, the Lancet, the world's preeminent medical journal, at the end of 2017 published a report that said that uh, 50,000 people in the UK die prematurely because of poor air quality. And um, the UK is ranked 101st out of 180 nations in this respect. Around the world, it's actually 3.3 million people, that's more than AIDS and malaria combined. So poor air quality is a global health crisis and here in the UK, you know if you think that we have 1500 1600 road deaths per year, the the deaths related to air quality just dwarf that and that's just the deaths it doesn't talk about the asthma or the eczema uh, that disproportionately impact the very young and the very old, you know people that we are you know just supposed to look after. So so that's sort of point 1. And the second point is the cost of the economy of all of that is enormous. The, you know, we did some research that um, estimated it was somewhere between 20 to 30 billion pounds of economic impact per year in the UK. That translates to about 11,000 pounds per combustion engine car over its lifetime. There were four select committees that came together just a week ago, and they actually estimated that it was in the same range. So four government select committees, having taken very broad evidence, came up with the same figure. The Department of Transport has the same figure. So suddenly, you, know, you start to realize that it's this is a sum of money that the Treasury really needs to be paying a bit more attention to than it currently is. So, you know, it's good health policy, therefore it's good sort of ethics. It's good economic policy. And what's, uh, what's great as well is it's good progressive politics too to support um an an improvement of air quality because of course the people that are disproportionately impacted tend to be people in lower income areas that live in more um, densely populated areas around uh, our our urban spaces so you know we, we we i mean i don't you know get out of bed in the morning thinking about how the work that we do actually makes a positive impact in this way. And that's, and that's extraordinarily motivating for me individually, but for the, for the whole team. So that's what we're, we're here to do.
2: It's incredibly insightful. Um, I used to work a lot in the, uh, the industry, the data centre industry and power stations, renewable power stations. Um, we did some, some pioneering research about six or seven years ago now um, on placing an economic value on natural capital water, CO2, emissions, um, waste, disposal costs. And that financial equation is incredibly powerful. Mm. Um, it's one thing to have the data. It's the timing that uh, you're, you're changing thinking as well as industry concepts and markets. And there is, a, there is a time where you can be almost too far ahead of the market mm. and just doesn't get it. That's not lost on me on what you're trying to achieve.
1: That must be incredibly yeah. difficult to overcome. Well, it's its interesting, isn't it? I think one of the things that attracted me to work at Tesla was actually that this was not just a car company. And at the time, it was very focused on cars, energy, and everything followed. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a car company that was just trying to build the world's best sustainable transport for people who care about that sort of thing because that would have been really quite niche it would have been it would have been worthy but it would have been quite niche but but that was never how um elon and um, and the leadership at tesla thought about uh, what tesla's purpose was tesla was always about just building the best car full stop and still is today so you know you look at our vehicles pound for pound the, the best performance the best safety record phenomenal um storage capacity The best technology, the best driving experience, um, great passenger experience. You just actually many people assume that when you are going to buy an electric vehicle, you have to make some sort of compromise. And in fact, part of what I love in telling the story of Tesla is that, you know, I appreciate that people may come with these judgments they've previously made, a pre a pre-judgment or a prejudice, but and actually let's challenge that thinking. Let's say that, well, there are certain fundamental things that because of the electric architecture we can do that actually a conventional car can't do. So we can, we can um, have multiple motors that apply torque um, more accurately onto the road, which improves mechanical grip, which improves safety and acceleration we have the battery filling the full floor of the vehicle and that is also structural so now we have a very low center of gravity reducing rollover risk in the event of an accident and giving the car phenomenal crush resistance in the event of an accident so the occupant safety record is extraordinary The, the North American safety authorities think that our SUV is the safest SUV ever built and it has the second lowest injury risk of any car ever built the only car safer than it is our saloon car so the number one number two safest cars on the road to tesla so you know I'm, i'm very proud about these things but but that was what attracted me to tesla because it wasn't about building a niche product for a niche audience it was about almost you know not hiding our sustainable ambitions but they're a little bit in the background next to hey we're just making you the best product now that's my philosophy that's that's one of the things i learned I mean, from tesla is that if you do want to challenge the convention and the status quo and as you say as you said in your question to kind of be disruptive almost almost early you know how can you succeed in that and the answer actually is you've got to build a great product because if you build a great product then you're no longer early everyone else is late and, um, and so that's been, um, that's been really exciting. The other thing I, I would say also for, you know, an audience of entrepreneurs was. I mean, at Tesla, we've done a bunch of stuff that is the opposite of how the industry has typically done things. And a great example of that is our product development cycles, you know, whereas the automotive industry typically develops cars over many years and has marketing-led product cycles. You know, if you buy a car, you buy the 2018 model or the 2019 model. We have done away with the concept of model years altogether when we, you know, we change the product every week. So like literally like many changes per week. So you know the, the development of Tesla's is continuous and, th- and that requires a completely different way of thinking and of structuring the teams and people who have a very different mindset it means you have to be much leaner um, but it also means that you get to attract the very best engineers on the planet to come and work for you because they get to put their newest inventions into action you know, very quickly and that's exciting to them so so there's actually a real there's complexity but there's a real benefit and then that strategic advantage of being early get sustained and improved on over time, and we can talk about that, but,
2: yeah. When I, I uh, in researching before the podcast, start, I went into your Blue Water store, and uh, what very much struck me on the um, Model S and Model X in, in particular was that um, that dynamic mould of engineering excellence and, and the art. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and it's created something which, um, I don't mean. I don't mean to make an analogy with Apple, but it's the the desirability factor. Mm. Um, And from somebody involved in sales, marketing, that must be incredibly
1: intoxicating. Yes. Well, uh, again, a very deliberate design decision, actually, to build a car that looked distinct and unique and beautiful, but didn't look overtly and obviously like a total break with the past, you know, that, that didn't scream, I'm an electric car. Because we wanted something that as many people as possible could could comfortably you know own and enjoy owning and um i have i have um, some friends that have bought cars that love the fact that the performance is there even if the car is slightly you know it doesn't it doesn't look like a mclaren or a ferrari or a lamborghini or you know all of which are wonderful in their own way you know i don't mean to knock anyone else's choices vehicles but um but we're faster than any of those cars <laughs> in a saloon it's crazy so as that and then i think the stores themselves uh, again are highly curated you know our stores are thoughtfully put together to be welcoming and friendly and 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 places where people can come and explore the technology without feeling the pressure that they have to buy one straight away and um you know we, we really try to create a different environment you know one that's um uh, friendly and welcoming to all and sundry families and so on as well which you know not to knock my uh, colleagues in, in, in the automotive industry, but you know, many of us having gone to a quote dealership to buy a car before, you know, can be quite a stressful experience. You sort of assume that they are, you know, baking in a healthy margin, and you know, you always leave questioning: could I have negotiated better or harder? And you know, some some people really enjoy that, and most don't, and so we cater for that majority.
2: A couple of things that struck me. One was the, uh, you mentioned the vertical integration of the energy market, and um, you know that was evident in your store. And also, I didn't have to cross the threshold to get into your store. Yeah. yeah. I didn't have to open a door. I didn't have to step over anything. It was the the store came out into the shopping mall, and I thought it was incredibly dynamic. But I'd just maybe just like to take you to, So the alternative, the the traditional, um, the the traditional mine and uh, fossil fuel economy legislation is now moving rapidly. Um, Your thoughts on some of the the, the diesel legislation that's come out and the advice of yourself and Volvo, how you're approaching it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, So... First of all, I think we deplore the government for making the announcement um, to end the sales of combustion engine vehicles um, by 2040. Actually, we think they could have potentially been slightly more aggressive. Certainly, Scotland's announced the same in 2032, and other countries have even gone earlier than that. Um, but we think it's certainly a step in the right direction, and it did resonate. You know, um, our stores welcome. Um, roughly forty to fifty thousand people per week through the doors, just in the UK, and so we talk a lot to consumers about these topics, and they heard the message. So that that was definitely helpful. Where, um, but you know, I think, uh, uh, well, I should say, and another area where I think the government does uh, deserve some credit is that they are trying to learn from other countries and trying to learn from organizations like ourselves that have a lot of experience operating in very different industries markets and for us just to bring ideas and innovation so that they can look and try to decide what makes sense to um, replicate in the uk and where where conversely might the uk choose to um, take a leadership position i do think that um, there are certain specific things that we could do at a very practical level to make, um, uh, to accelerate the uptake of electric vehicles. So one that I think people will um, uh, relate to is, we we need a good electric vehicle charging infrastructure in order to sustain a wholesale um, movement to um, zero emissions electric cars and actually the uk's infrastructure is not bad but could be could be better there are uh, challenges for example if you want to install a an ultra fast charger at a motorway service station there are a number of challenges in that area some of which best, you know, um, um, dealt with privately. But there's some legislation that, you know, could be brought in to make it easier to lay cable across land to connect transformers to those charging stations. And it turns out something as simple as that is actually incredibly difficult to do in the UK and, and much harder than any other country in the world. So we've had um, sites that we could have energized nine, ten months ago, and they've been held up for, uh, for all of that time by just trying to figure out how we can agree the legal framework to or dig a that's trench that's and away leaves, exactly. So, so we'd love to see the government bring some legislation through um, around way leaves. Then I think um, in, uh, uh, on, 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 the, on the, the next side is, is how we can stimulate demand. And what's really interesting is when you have price parity between a combustion engine and an electric car, consumers will choose the electric car. And the data is there from Norway. So in Norway, the Golf and the e-Golf are priced the same, but 51% of consumers choose the eGolf, So they're priced the same, but more people choose the electric version. That's really interesting. Now, in, in Norway is not part of the European Union, so they have no VAT and they have no luxury car tax. And that, that is part of what, on electric vehicles, sorry. And that's part of what, is done to achieve price parity so the uk could look at um how to help consumers by ad, adopt these technologies by aiming for closer to price parity and that might be a combination of addressing things like the benefit in kind system for company car drivers to be to make a bit more sense than it currently does and we're, we're talking to the government with some ideas around that um there could be even we could look at vat I mean, uh, once we're out of the european union and we'll have some of that freedom as well so that could be a really interesting um, area to look at. And, um, and then I think you see local councils and, and mayors starting to introduce some levy on, on, on diesel as well, You know, because of the points I said earlier, that those are the most polluting cars in urban areas where, um, I mean, to take the example of London, Sadiq Khan said last year that 433 schools in London are in areas where the air quality routinely breaches safe standards and 82 percent of those are in areas marked as deprived based on the percentage of kids on free school meals so it is you know good progressive politics but it's also frankly just like giving our kids the right to breathe clean air and this is why the government's lost Court case after court case after court case, uh, but because they've um, they haven't done enough yet to tackle this. So, so we, we, we you know we applaud them for what they have done. We think they could go further. and We think there's some good examples on on charging and and benefit in kind to be taken from countries like the Netherlands and elsewhere. And we, you know we continue to um, provide our advice and guidance and, and hope that they will listen to as much of it as possible.
2: Just, just keep it on the political agenda. how difficult is it to to lobby? Um, the political powers that they and your thoughts
1: on on Brexit yeah um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do with Brexit up front just because we don't have a tremendous amount to say on it you know like any other business we think it's important for business to have clarity and um, that uh, the fewest possible barriers to you know movement of goods and people across across the borders but beyond that I think a lot still remains to be seen but um, on, on the question of you know uh, and we actually we we have a very very small government relations team it consists of one person and until recently it was it was just it was just me I'd now like I now actually have a person whose full-time role it is to talk to government but um, but uh, before that it was something that I did in my spare time so I would do the occasional meeting from here to there to sort of share ideas so we it's it's an area where we um tread lightly and quietly and um, we're very transparent tesla has you know uh, what you see is what you get the mission is above the door, so to speak um and we're not trying to you know balance competing demands from within our own company over how quickly to go electric or anything like that so i think i think actually we found that government has a pretty open door to business in the UK is generally very sensible but it, I mean at national government is really gener- generally very sensible and what can be more challenging is sometimes at the local level where it really depends on finding champions within local areas and then you can achieve a lot but um, uh, you need a sort of an innovator to to work with at the local level but, um, the, uh, but overall I think you know, there is broad ex- broad acceptance you know, that, that we need to accelerate this transition. Four years ago when I started here, there were still a lot of people in the UK that said, oh, it'll never happen or, um, you know, we've only just all moved to diesels. Uh, you know, it'll be decades before electric cars catch on. I just don't hear that. You know, certainly not from sensible people expressed in a sensible way anymore. It's a, that's that is now the niche opinion, and the mainstream is firmly, you know, behind the, the move to um, zero emission and, in particular, electric.
2: I, I just certainly feel that uh, we're at the base of an exponential curve here. Yeah, um, I wouldn't like to that tipping curve is uh, in terms of time. Yeah, but, uh, the momentum is gathering all the time. And I do believe. I think the answer, to a certain extent, is enshrined in the economics, Mm, but I I do come back to that desirability factor and I guess the third component there is pure functionality. Mm. You you mentioned uh, charging points and do you see a point where on the move charging will will be achieved?
1: I think that's still more of a laboratory than a real-world technology. Charging charging is actually, uh, well, I think charging is a lot more interesting than most people think it is, (laughs) which I may be in a minority here. But um, but actually, you have to think differently. So a lot of people, um, basically, when they make the move from combustion engine to electric vehicle, they initially come at it trying to replicate the combustion engine behavior that they're used to. So they think about going to a fast charging station and how quickly can I charge my car up? But If you talk to an electric vehicle owner, they actually think very differently. So what they think about is, um, can I charge my car whilst I'm off doing something else? So instead of, you know, when we go to a petrol station, we have to stand there, not on our phone, not talking to our friends, or um, well really not doing anything productive for five to ten minutes whilst the car fills up. Then we go and stand in line. The whole environment is a little smelly by definition. It's not. It's it's expensive, and we've had to take a detour. And in this, you know, that can be quite a substantial detour for many people, in order to go there. But we think because we've been trained that this is a desirable kind of behaviour to follow. So we, initially, people say well i must have a fast charging station in my house so that i can replicate this behavior and actually the opposite is true what you want is to be able to charge at home or to charge at work charge whilst you're at the supermarket or the cinema or playing a round of golf or at a restaurant having a meal or staying overnight in a hotel or you know um at the football club watching a game those are the scenarios when you want to charge whilst you're off doing something else just like you do with your mobile phone So no one asks the question, well, how quickly does my phone charge? Because we just plug it in and then we go to sleep. And then we wake up and the phone is fully charged. And the same is true for electric cars. So actually, charging um, uh, doesn't have to be complicated or particularly high speed or um anything like that what you want is ubiquitous access to low speed charging so cars can charge when they're parked which is 90 percent of the time or 95 percent of the time so so charging's both more simple and slightly um counterintuitive than you know more counterintuitive than, than, than people think so yeah um and the other thing is from a, from the point of view kind of just the physics of it um induction plate or induction charging across an air gap is quite inefficient the the efficiency um I th- decreases in a non-linear fashion as the the air gap increases in size so so in order to get a meaningful charge as you were um you know either contactless or driving long, um you'd have to ha- you'd have to solve a number of engineering challenges that might just not be worth the cost mm-hmm. um if you can just like plug a car in when you get where you're going
2: yeah pretty straightforward um, i did exactly yeah as you just said um uh, last week, um, Ripley on the A3 went to have a lovely lunch with, with somebody. Mm. Was a maze around the back in the hotel car parking. Whole bank and half a dozen Tesla charging stations.
1: Great, right. yeah.
2: And there was uh, some, uh, some uh, flexible office accommodation there as well. And it yeah. created a hub. And I guess it can create that draw and, and add value to the social economy.
1: Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, we have got we've got over, almost, not quite, but almost 400 locations just in the UK now. Hotels, golf courses, country clubs, restaurants, you know, that have these slow chargers installed there. And and by slow, what I still mean is that over the course of a three hour, you know, lunch or, or, or meeting, you'd get anywhere in the range of sort of 60 to 80 miles of range added back onto your car. So actually, you know, quite a useful amount of range in what well, just whilst you're doing what you would have otherwise been doing. And that's Part of the point, the there is literally no inconvenience at all. You haven't had to detour and stand at the smelly petrol station, you're just doing what you would have otherwise done, but your car is charging at the same time. But I mean, of course, at the same time, we also want to enable long distance travel. So we've built, um, I think we're up to 48, I think I'm losing track slightly of the ultra fast, what we call supercharger stations just in the UK and Ireland, um, to enable long distance travel, and then. We've built hundreds more on the continent of Europe, so you can get from Aberdeen to the Alps, to the north, uh, the, the, the uh, Arctic Circle in North Norway, to the Mediterranean coastlines in Spain and Portugal and Italy, and you can do all of that on our supercharge network. And the majority of our owners don't don't have to pay for that, so you can actually travel road trip across Europe with zero fuel costs. Which is amazing. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine doing that before today? That's an extraordinary, you know, that's an extraordinary reality. But it, but it, it's really today. You can do this today.
2: The concept, uh, the logistics uh, are just mind blowing. I guess leads us on to that culture that's within the Tesla DNA of um, solving solving problems. In a very unique way, and you're solving problems that have never been never been asked of before. Mm. Um, how do you How do you and your leadership team create that, that environment to because success and failure must come hand in hand. And that's yeah, evolution. Well,
1: I think they. I think they have to actually. And and, you you know, you said it perfectly in one word: evolution. And the evolutionary process, uh, you know, requires uh, failure in order to find the successful path. And I think so. That's one thing. Is you know, um, we definitely have uh, a culture that is iterative and data driven. So we like to try things, measure results, tweak try again, maybe make some changes. And then, you know, over time we find the optimum ways of doing certain things. We're not afraid to change direction. I think one of the pieces of advice that I give um, leaders when they join Tesla is to make sure that you can always operate with a plan A, B, and C in the back of your mind at the same time. In fact, not just the back of your mind, you have to be really running with three plans at once at all times because we can change direction overnight And then that, you know, it's just not in our culture for it to be okay that you then go and decide what the new plan is. No, 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 you've got to be ready to react. So, um, and that's quite a mindset shift for a lot of people coming from, you know, big and more, more highly kind of structured and planned organizations you know, ours, ours is not, not planned, it's just that you've got multiple versions, it's like a sort of multiverse of, of plans and then you just have to um, switch between them and I think um, I think uh, we also are very ambitious as an organization and as individuals within that organization you know we've, we think that it's our job to get the very best results out of ourselves and our teams for the best benefit of the company people are very motivated by that so it's it's, um, it's uh, extraordinary you know I've worked for organizations large and small but at Tesla it's somehow got the best of both worlds and I, I don't think I've ever really seen. People rally together to solve a big challenge, like I have at Tesla, where where, where there's really very little room or acceptance or tolerance for negativity. You know, it, it's it's the, the the answer is always okay. We'll find a way. You know, it's never that can't be done, and here's a list of reasons why. No, no, it's like gulp take a take a breath right let's get to work you know that that is a, is a is a it's just a wonderful environment to to work in actually um so i think it's it's a combination of all those things ambition hard work fun you know um uh, positivity willingness to fail but also fail smart you know we want to have high quality problems and men make high quality mistakes um and avoid the low quality mistakes but um you know we uh have a lot of fun that way, and uh, so far it seems to have served us quite well.
2: Incredible rate of progress. And on that front, maybe we could just have a look at other areas of that vertical, vertical integration of the energy conundrum in terms of energy generation, and of course the game changer energy storage. Mm. Could you give us an update on, on where we are?
1: Um, sure. So so um we have a, a residential product called Powerwall which is in its second um uh, version so Powerwall 2 And we already have hundreds of installations of those, you know, in the UK. And um, and then we have commercial products called power packs, which come in different configurations, you know, some much larger, some uh, relatively smaller. So we've got the world's largest battery installation uh, as a Tesla battery installation in South Australia. It's a hundred megawatt hour uh, installation powering 10,000 homes, which famously, you know, was uh, built and delivered within a 90 day promise that Elon made on Twitter. So we had to um, uh, finish it on time, or the project was going to be done free of charge. Thankfully, another one of those cool moments. Um, <laughs> so it being in South Australia, I I was watching from a distance rather than involved, but I I did uh, think to myself, wow, like what other company, what other CEO would um, make a commitment like that? But. Um, Uh, And, and, you know, we had to commercially tender for that project. So we we weren't just granted it off the back of a tweet. Um, After that tweet, as you can imagine, many other uh, organizations competed for that business. And then we won that competition and then we delivered on time. So the next version, the next sort of uh, project associated with that is really exciting. So together... With the South Australian government, Tesla's going to put solar roofing on 50,000 homes and batteries into 50,000 homes in South Australia to create the world's first virtual energy um, grid, which is an extraordinary realisation of what has always been kind of the, the, the ambition with these types of projects. So that's that'll be over the next four years, but that is you know, exciting. it would be great fun to watch that come to life.
2: Is that centrally funded by... Um
1: the I'm. Not, I actually have no idea how it's funded. Um. I. But. Uh, but. Um, the technology's there. So the technology's there. That's the point. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, so that's pretty fun. And then we do have large battery installations here in the UK already. I mean, much smaller than the the South Australia example. I think the largest one that's public is five megawatt hours, so twenty times smaller. But we're bidding for projects that are even bigger than the South Australian project. So there's there's a tremendous amount of ambition to make the UK. Uh, one of the largest uh, energy markets you know for for Tesla around the world which um, you know together with Germany and Italy and, and then other 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 um, world markets but the UK is going to be really key so uh, so yeah it kind of and and the, the, the sort of it, it's obvious when you think about it. You know, today we store energy in units of one inefficient power station at a time, which we sort of ramp up when it's FA Cup final time, or one reservoir that we empty when it's FA Cup final time. That's just daft. You know, instead we should be storing energy at a very local level in the home and dotted around the grid. Some of the most exciting projects that I've heard about recently, which I can't go into detail about, but are thinking about how to use large tracts of land in the UK, to then take, you know, large chunks of national infrastructure off grid. And, you know, these are these are no longer academic papers. These are actual projects, which will take, you know, probably some time to come to fruition, but we've started, and that's amazing.
2: So do you see Tesla moving into macro energy generation, or will it be the aggregate of micro generation and drawn together on the
1: I, I, I can I can neither sort of rule anything out or in really on that. I mean, we'll be a provider of the products certainly that um, that are used for both of those types of solutions, and then whether we go into doing some of that directly ourselves or not, I think is 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 um, you know I can. I can't comment really. It's certainly something that there's potential for us to do that, um, but equally, we, you know, we might just be a manufacturer of the, of the products to support others to do it. But, um, but I, I, I am sure that you know projects like that will will come online in the next few years. So you
2: you mentioned earlier on you have a young daughter. Mm. Um, I have a relatively young family as well. What what hopes and aspirations do you have for those young entrepreneurs in a world that is, our children are going to grow in, in a very different environment. Yeah. One that is, has a fast pace of change. What are your hopes yeah. and aspirations as a, as a farmer?
1: Yeah. Um, so as you ask me that question, there's a few things that run through my mind. The first one is I hope that they beat us up for why did we allow diesel <laughs> And combustion engines to go on for so long like why didn't we get rid of that way sooner didn't we see the damage we were doing to the planet and that's that for them it will be a total no-brainer and the acceleration will be the other way so that we start i think i think this generation you know my daughter's um a year and a half and so in, in in 20 years time when she's still a very young woman um i'm sure that public opinion and the technology will have completely changed our dependence on fossil fuels and and made us you know, think and act and behave much more sustainably. So I'd like her to grow up in a sustainable world. Um, I think from the point of view of her growing up and, and having opportunity, I'd love to see... Um, the progress that has been made, you know, continue to accelerate in terms of equal opportunities for for um, women alongside men, and you know, equal pay, and um, and um, you know, that just see that glass ceiling, you know, truly forgotten. That would be great. Um, and um, I think that uh, from an educational perspective, I'd love to see you know technology be brought to the field of education to allow for just more. Um, methods of learning you know what we see now with organizations like um, Udacity is one of the, the ones that I'm most familiar with but the sort of big online universities where actually people can take you know graduate and postgraduate um, degree courses from the best lecturers in the world and they can take them online from anywhere in the world so you know you no longer have to pour money into bricks and mortar necessarily and actually we can be a lot more can probably put a lot more money into the right research projects instead of paying for upkeep on buildings um just to bring students into a classroom when actually you know the online world allows students to connect in different ways and that doesn't mean um a a sort of disintermediation of teaching or teachers or or disconnection of students from one another actually i think it can enhance all of those things but just in different configurations Um, so i think i think learning and education would be great to see really be uh, transformed for her and
2: um yeah the, the, the different skill set shift and the mindset shift in your organization at the moment on how to identify the problem mm. and then uh, to how to address and, and challenge that to, to create a solution what emerging things can you learn from to to decide what how best to equip our children for the future what are the skills that are going to equip our children for yeah change?
1: so i think uh, you know, basic science and science engineering maths you know uh, education is really important um, not necessarily expensive culture and language either because actually as the world becomes more global then our ability to connect and empathize and understand different diverse perspectives is increasingly important particularly as the relative uh, importance of um, you know Europe will decline over the next uh, decades, um, and and that's just a fact. And like it's an uncomfortable one that we have to you know get used to. So I think we will need to um, be less arrogant with our worldview and and you know be better at understanding different philosophies and uh, heritages around the world. I think that um, uh, a problem solving skill sets you know the ability to solve problems from first principles to use logic and um will also be important because in in part um as the world gets more complicated you've got to be able to abstract your thinking to to understand um how to build you know whether it's processes or systems um involving people or technology to to get what you want to get done done i would say i mean i'm sure that my um uh, my daughter will learn to, you know, a degree of software engineering along the way, whether that's just, you know, basic curriculum type stuff by the time she goes to school, you know, at a much more advanced level than it is today, or whether she chooses to make that more core to her further and higher education. But I think many more people will do that, whether, whether you know, whether or not they become full-time professional software engineers or not. I imagine that if I mentioned three types of CEO earlier, finance, engineering, sales CEOs, the engineering Background will probably become more more prominent moving forwards, but, but then I think also we are going to have to learn to cope with um, information overload. You know, my my parents' generation's ability to consume information um, from multiple different sources at once all the time is very different to my generation, and and then the, and then children today at school are completely different to me i'm 37 so i'm you know sort of in, i'm kind of in the middle i mean i guess i just called myself middle-aged for the first yeah. time <laughs> that, that, that was a 100%. that was a life moment wasn't it yeah gosh must go and buy a sports car um so the um uh, but but it's you know it is just a fact that um, uh, when i was at school it was still handwritten exam papers and it was what you had in your head and actually why should it be that way life is not like that life gives you access to supercomputers in the in your pocket and the whole of the internet in the palm of your hand and if you don't know how to use that incredible resource to get stuff done then more for you, and and our schools should probably also be preparing people to to do that and make use of that. So it's going to be you know, interesting to see how that develops.
2: The ability to be clear and concise in anything that's in a written format seems to be key. Um, I notice with with youngsters, there is a reduction in um, reading books, or maybe audio books, um, and I guess. Many of us really, where we're used to the 147 character type of communication, and yeah. a lot more pulses, sound bites, yeah, which could be a danger. I mean, that can lead to opinion engineering, can't it?
1: Yeah, um,
2: yeah. Which,
1: <laughs> which is in the news at the moment. Right? In the news, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, um, I d- uh, so I have given a, a sort of maybe slightly pithy piece of advice before, which may be Gleb, but um. I think there's some truth to it, which is that you are who you hang out with and what you read. You are who you hang out with and what you read. And if you if you stand back and you look at those things and you don't like what you see, you know, then then one really needs to change those things. Um, and I think that's true at at all ages. And um, so, in the context of changing reading habits and cons- just consumption habits think there's still something actually quite important about what one reads long form because because um there's a tremendous amount of brain rot type stuff out there at the risk of sounding like you know uh, from a generation that doesn't get it anymore but but watching endless seven second clips of um you know video bloggers talking about what they did that day and i I won't make the sort of joke about you know cats or anything like that because it's not that but people there's a voyeurism to a lot of this stuff, which doesn't, which isn't, which isn't adding any value whatsoever. And it is just, you know, just consuming time. Um, so what will happen is that there will be um, people who reject that and spend their time reading books and educating themselves and they will stand out. And then there will be people that um, watch endless Snapchat videos and they will work for the ones that don't. Um,
2: save your thoughts. save your so on the subject of, of a
1: resource out there, a uh, book, is there a recommendation you'd like to make to our audience on a book that has had a profound impact on, on you? Yeah. Um, so for for budding entrepreneurs, I think uh, the best book, and um, this may have been already shared in the past, because I think it's fast becoming it, it's a book called. It's, it's fast becoming one that lots of people read. Um, it's a book called The Hard Things About Hard Things and um it's extraordinary it's written by a guy called um horowitz of andreessen horowitz and um which is one of the leading venture capital firms in the valley and um it is a relatively concise book written from the point of view of someone that has been a ceo that has invested in some of the world's most successful ceos and sat on the boards of some of the most successful you know fast-growing um companies about being a ceo and each chapter is Concise, actionable, without any fluff, and at the end of it, there's a really long appendix with really useful information about, you know, how to conduct a, an interview for a, v, a VP of sales, you know, um, how to do a performance review, you know, those kinds of things. So, so that book um, is it talks about the loneliness of being a business leader, a business owner, or a CEO, um, but it also is actionable, concise, you know, good, great advice. So, I think that's a good one. And then. Other than that, I would just read anything that inspires you, you know, biographies of inspiring people or, or, um, or science fiction. Actually, frankly, like I personally still enjoy a lot of science fiction because good science fiction, which has a grounding in science with just one, you know, leap of the imagination and then the writer can take his or her imagination wherever they want it to go. You know, that kind of science fiction is a reasonably good predictor for some of the stuff that is going to get invented in the next 50 years. And, if you can, you know, one of the things that holds people back from imagining a future world is that they imagine that things can't change. So, if you can enjoy a bit of science fiction, I think it trains your brain to imagine. You know, what if things were a little different? Yeah. And there's something in
2: that. Think exactly. so. I think so. So, if people want to follow your journey, how could they follow you? Is there a social media channel?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm on Twitter at Mister Giorgal. It's. I, I don't tweet a tremendous amount, and I tweet fairly conservatively, just because at Tesla, we're, we're you know if we uh, start expressing too many of our own opinions, then the press starts to write about them, which we don't want. So um, I, uh, I I'm on there on Twitter and uh, otherwise on LinkedIn. So you know, yeah.
2: Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute privilege, and thank you for your openness. There's real pearls of wisdom there. So thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Property Portfolio Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that it inspired you on the next leg of your journey. If you've got any questions or comments, why not reach out to us at our Facebook page, Equa Academy. Also, don't forget to register for free access to hundreds of property development videos and templates over at equaacademy.co.uk and we'll see you in next week's episode. Thank you.